with me to God's holy word and to Acts chapter 4. And that portion of scripture that we read together, Acts chapter 4. So, opposition to or persecution of Christians is becoming something of a a hot topic within Christian circles in Britain today in the 21st century. So, we hear of various murmurings, don't we? We hear of street preachers silenced. And we hear maybe of people losing their jobs because they refuse to work on Sundays. We hear of the banning of wearing religious symbols and staff uniforms and so on. The list goes on, doesn't it? Now, okay, whether these things really constitute persecution is perhaps open to debate. But surely what is beyond doubt is that as Britain continues along this sort of chosen path of increased secularization, that we should also expect to see an increase in overt opposition to biblical Christianity. An increase in this country of opposition to biblical Christianity. So yeah, okay, there might be persecution now, you might want to argue that. But there will certainly be opposition in the future. And so with that in mind, the question that we come to this morning as we consider, uh, or we arrive in Acts chapter 4, is kind of all the more pertinent. You know, it's all the more appropriate, it's all the more apt. Because as we together this morning look at these verses here, we ask, when facing opposition, how do we respond When opposition comes to Christians, to a church like this, to a congregation, what are we going to do about it? How do we act? How do we respond? And the plan this morning is to look at four things together. Four things about the church opposed. And I suggest that we make a start and we consider the first of those points. Let's consider resurrection. In opposition, okay? You got that? Resurrection in opposition. Now, I know that you had a certain Mr. Innes McSween um, with you last week, but despite the gap, I'm pretty sure that you can still remember uh, where we had got to in the, in the, the story of Acts. Do you remember? We're kind of, we're coming towards the end of this rather long episode that stretches way back to the beginning of chapter 3. Way back, do you remember the guy? The, the crippled beggar who was waiting at the temple gate. Remember him? Well, you remember what happened to him then? Peter's healed the guy. And then this has attracted a crowd. And then Peter has stood in the temple. And he's started preaching to the crowd. So what happens here? We come to chapter 4. What happens at the beginning of chapter 4? Do you see it? Well, just as Peter is, I, I suppose, probably what's happening here is he is concluding his sermon. He's certainly still speaking to this crowd. So he's still preaching. And what happens? We're told that priests see this. We're told that the priest, the captain of the temple guard, we're told that the Sadducees, they see Peter preaching. They storm up to Peter and John. They interrupt his sermon. 
They halt it. They arrest Peter and John. And you see, they chuck them. They throw them in jail. So, okay, fine. What should we be thinking about here? Well, I think there's a a very real danger that when we, Christians in the 21st century, look back on these first chapters of Acts, that we look back on these things through rose-coloured spectacles, don't we? You know, we read these chapters that we've looked at over the last couple of months, and we read, you know, 3,000 people saved in one day, you know? And we read about the church here, 5,000 people, and we think, wow! You know, imagine being in a church like that. You know, it must be so easy, it must be just so fantastic, it must, it's just absolute bliss, how idyllic. But what we need to understand this morning is the reality of the opposition that the early church faced. Because you see, this church here that we're sort of thinking about and we look at and think, oh, you know, it's nice and easy for these people. See, from this point on, Acts chapter 4 onwards to the end of the book, this church is going to be resisted. This church is going to be thoroughly opposed. This church is going to be persecuted. There was no sort of bed of roses for this first New Testament church. And I'll tell you what that means for us. It means that when we are talking this morning about potential persecution of Christians in Britain, that that should not in any way surprise us, should it? You know, if, if, if we are noticed for our Christian witness, just as Peter and John were here, if we're noticed for the fact that we're proclaiming the gospel that we should not be surprised if the world comes along like it did here and tries to interrupt us and tries to disturb us and to stop us and to halt that gospel proclamation. We shouldn't be surprised. But more than that, I think we see here as well, why Christians are persecuted? Why? See, we read chapter 4 a moment ago. Now, did, did you see when I, I read through it? Did you see the exact root cause of the problems here? Did you see exactly why it was that Peter and John were arrested? Did you see it? Because they weren't arrested because they were preaching in the temple. Okay? And it's not that, it's not that they were sort of It's not that they were arrested because they had caused a disturbance. Did you see the exact reason why they were arrested? It's in verse 2. They're arrested because they were preaching about resurrection. Okay? Now, if you know your Bibles, you might say, I know why that is, I know what's going on here. It's because these Sadducees were a religious or political faction that... That, uh, that rejected the idea of resurrection. Okay, so it's the Sadducees here. So they hear this, Peter and John speaking about, uh, about resurrection. They don't like it. They come along and they arrest Peter and John. Okay, that's maybe what you're thinking. But it's not that. Okay, that's wrong. Because think about it. There was thousands of Jews at that time that believed in resurrection. Okay, so the Sadducees would be well used to people talking, preaching about that subject. 
The exact problem is much, much more specific than that. You see, verse 2, what does it actually say? It says that the disciples were proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. In Jesus. Do you see what we've got here? The Sadducees are raging. They are absolutely furious, not because the disciples are speaking about uh, resurrection generically or generally. They're raging because the apostles are proclaiming that Jesus Christ had already been raised, that it had already happened, that, that in some ways that you could say that the resurrection had almost started in Jesus, that he's the first fruits of the resurrection. Do you see it? The church was opposed because it was preaching the reality that Jesus has been raised from the dead. And so I wonder, here we go, I wonder do you see the incredible similarities between Acts chapter 4 and the situation that the church in the West faces today? you see it? I mean, do you see the parallels here? Because in Acts chapter 4, in the temple, you were to preach, fine, that's okay. And you could sort of teach, preach, Generally, but if you dared to believe in the resurrection, the actual resurrection of Jesus Christ, it was then that all this opposition comes. And you see, that's exactly what it is like today, isn't it? I mean, what does our culture tell us? Our culture would permit us to have general beliefs. You know, we are kind of allowed to even call ourselves Christians, if you like. I think we're even allowed to say that we believe in Jesus Christ so long as we do not believe in Jesus for who he said he was. See, you can, you can believe in Jesus as a type of moralist, can't you? Culture permits that. You can believe that Jesus was a, was a teacher. But if you take your faith too seriously, you, you, you mustn't do that. You mustn't believe, our culture says, that Jesus was the raised and resurrected Son of God. Do you see the point? Just as it was with Peter and John, it's the resurrection. The resurrection is the dividing point. It is the point of conflict between the church and the world. So if we believe, and I hear this, if we believe that Christ was raised, If we believe that the tomb was empty, then just like the Sadducees viewed Peter and John, our society will view us as a danger to the crowd. Resurrection in opposition. Okay, secondly, let's think about assistance in opposition. Assistance in opposition. Okay. Here, let's make sure, when we're thinking about Acts 4, that we, that we appreciate just how serious this was, okay? Let's really think of it. Peter, John, arrested. Peter and John, thrown in jail, right? Serious. Then what happens, okay? So the next morning, let's try and imagine it, okay? The next morning, they're taken out of jail, and they're set before this Sanhedrin. Now, who are, who's the Sanhedrin? Well, the Sanhedrin, think about a sort of governing body here. So the Sanhedrin was made up of 70 elders. 
um, plus the high priest. So who have you got? You've got the big dudes, okay? You know, you've got the sort of main religious figures of the city. And before these guys, Peter and John are kind of put in trial, aren't they? And they are sort of asked, told to explain themselves under whose authority do they have, you know, to, to, to heal this crippled man? Now, I don't know if you have done any public speaking in your time or not. But if you've done any public speaking, can you imagine how intimidating or terrifying this must have been for Peter and John, you know? You're asked to speak publicly, surrounded everywhere you look by these sort of serious, religious heavyweights. But just have a look, and this is the important thing to see here. Look that Peter does not speak alone. He doesn't speak alone. See, there's something very, very important that we are told in verse 8. Do you see it in verse 8? It says that Peter spoke filled with the Holy Spirit. Peter spoke filled with the Holy Spirit. Now that's something that we are supposed to pick up on. And it's something that we are supposed to, when we read that, we're supposed to zoom into it. Why? Because we know, we've looked at it, Acts is not just a book about how the church works, is it? Acts is a book about how the Holy Spirit enables the church to work. And what we're supposed to understand, that this episode here, Peter being filled with the Holy Spirit in front of the Sanhedrin, what we're supposed to see, it is a fulfillment of a promise that Jesus Christ has made to his church. It's a fulfillment of a promise. Because you see, more than once in Jesus' earthly ministry, he has assured his church, he has assured his people that at times of particular opposition, that they are going to be equipped with particular power. Get this, listen to this. This is one example in Luke chapter 12. And when I read this out, you imagine this going through Peter's head as he stands before the Sanhedrin. Okay, ready for this. This is a promise that Jesus had made. When you are brought before rulers and authorities, don't worry about how you are going to defend yourselves. Don't worry about what you're going to say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you are going to say. Imagine that for Peter. You see, in many ways it's like a politician's worst nightmare, isn't it? You know, the politician. He's about to make a very, very important speech. And he sort of walks down in the auditorium and he walks up to the podium and the audience is there before him and he's got this pack of sort of hungry journalists right in front of him and he gets up to the stage, he gets up to the lectern and then he notices it. He notices that the auto cue has just fused and gone off. And he panics. You know, the pressure is really on. And then, thankfully, it sparks into life again. And the words appear on the screen before him. Well, you see, folks, that is what Jesus has promised us. Isn't it? We are Jesus' ambassadors. And he's promised that when when the pressure is on, that when the opposition is in our face, that through the Holy Spirit, he's going to give us the words. 
The words are going to be there for us. That's what happened to Peter. And take encouragement. That is what is going to happen when you face opposition and persecution for your faith. You see, very often we hear people, when they talk about church history, a resident church historian will hopefully back me up on this, okay? When people are talking about church history, we, we sometimes hear them talk about a vague connection. They'll say, do you know when we look back over the centuries of the church, there seems to be a vague connection between times of difficulty and persecution for the church and times where God works in power. People say there's a, a vague connection there. I'll tell you this. What we learn in Acts chapter 4, what we learn from Jesus' ministry is that there is no vague connection in those things. No vague connection at all. We are promised, get this, we are promised in Scripture that at times of persecution, at times of difficulty for the church, that the church will definitely receive great power from the Holy Spirit. Now, is that not immensely encouraging for a congregation like ours this morning, isn't it? I mean, it should be. Because if we do, as we're suggesting today, if we do face this increase in persecution in this country, guess what? We've got absolutely nothing to worry about. We've got nothing to fear. We've got no reason to be scared, even tomorrow, of entering into a potentially contentious conversation about faith. No reason to worry about it at all. Why not? Because just as Peter was filled here, when we face opposition, we are going to be equipped. We are going to be empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. Resurrection. Assistance. Thirdly, exclusivity. If you're taking notes, all the best with that. Exclusivity in opposition. And here's a scenario for you. So you're at work tomorrow. Or you're at university tomorrow. Or you're with a group of friends and it's lunchtime. And there's a few of your friends around you sharing lunch. And you're having a conversation about the weekend. And you know how it goes. They've asked you what you do. And you sort of tentatively have said, oh, I was at church. And they've asked you, what is it that your church believes? And you're speaking to your friends tomorrow. And you can sense that the pressure's kind of building up as you talk about your church. And you can sense that people are becoming a bit agitated by this. And do you know what? They're becoming antagonistic. And you can tell that some people are becoming really, really angry about this. And then somebody does it. Somebody asks you the question. They say, so you mean to tell us that all these other religions of the world then, they're wrong. You mean to tell us that you believe that the Bible, Christianity is the only way to the Father. Is that what you believe? There's your scenario. What do you say? What do we learn here? 
Well, Peter's before the Sanhedrin, isn't he? And he's been opposed and he's been filled with the Holy Spirit. But I want you to pay attention to what he says to these bigwigs in the Sanhedrin. First of all, as we would expect, he attributes the healing of this cripple to Jesus. But he's a master of turning any conversation around to the gospel. So what does he do? He preaches to these uh, these people in the Sanhedrin. But here's the thing. Please notice this. Under pressure, in the face of overt opposition, Peter holds to the exclusive claims of the gospel. Did you hear that? Please hear it. Under pressure, faced with opposition, he sticks to the exclusive claims of the gospel. Because he's standing before these guys, and it's intimidating, I'm sure. But what does he say? He says to them, guys, salvation is found in no one else. No one else. And this morning, of course, we have got to see that we too, as Christians, must hold, must hold to the unique claims that the Bible makes about Jesus Christ. But we have to see that we must do that, especially when under pressure and in the face of opposition. Because I bet you know, as well as I do, that at times of greatest pressure and times of greatest opposition, those times, they're also going to lead to the greatest temptation to dilute and to water down what we believe. Isn't that right? I mean, think about the scenario that we posed a moment ago. The, you know, the people around you are putting on the pressure and they've asked you, is this really what you believe? The temptation is going to be to say, well, actually, you know, it's just my thoughts here. And yeah, I know that, you know, people in other parts of the world have got lots of different ideas. You know, each to their own. Come on. We have to hold to the exclusivity of the gospel. You see, the problem is in many ways that we have been conned outright by society. You know, that we have been duped by our culture into thinking that all exclusive claims, regardless of what they are, that all exclusive claims are wrong, that they are harsh, that they are hateful. Do you see, friends, it's different, isn't it, for us? The exclusive claim that Jesus Christ alone has died for sin. The exclusive claim that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. That exclusive claim is the most loving thing that you can tell anyone, isn't it? By sticking to the exclusive claims of the gospel, we are showing people that we mean how they can experience the very love and salvation of their heavenly father. So if you, hear this please, if you are facing opposition for your faith, in the workplace or at home, wherever it might be, then please hold fast. And do what Peter does here. Don't cave in. You tell whoever it is, you tell as many people as you can, that the only way that they can be saved, the only way, is through Jesus Christ. Salvation is, is found in no one else. So resurrection and assistance, exclusivity, we end with courage in opposition. Courage in opposition. 
Okay, so the situation as it stands in Acts chapter 4 is that Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, he's proclaimed this message to the Sanhedrin, Jesus, the only way to the Father. But I think, perhaps surprisingly, it isn't, it isn't the exclusive claims and it isn't all this talk of the resurrection that causes the greatest surprise to these religious figures, is it? See, we're told in verse 13 that the Sanhedrin was left astonished at this meeting, but they're astonished when they see the courage and they see the bravery of Peter and John. And friends, do you see what boldness it is? Because this is boldness of the ill-educated, isn't it? I mean, this is boldness of former fishermen going before the theological elite. This is boldness in the face of death. You see, Peter and John know that Annas, Caiaphas, who are these guys? These are the same men who tried Jesus and saw him sentenced to death. This is incredible boldness, and it is also boldness to continue with these exclusive claims. Because you see, the, the, the Sanhedrin tell Peter and John, they say, stop, you're not doing this anymore, no way. They say, stop preaching. But Peter and John, the boldness, they say, not a chance. They say they must continue in obedience to, to God. You see it? It is boldness. What courage here. For the sake of Jesus Christ. So, with that in mind, we're just going to end by me asking you a question. See, when we talk about opposition to the church in the 21st century, are you embarrassed by the lack of risk that you've taken for Jesus Christ? Are you embarrassed just now by the Lack of opposition that you face in your life because of your unwillingness to, to stand and proclaim the exclusive claims of the gospel. And think about opposition. Does it make you embarrassed? See, if it does, don't be. Please do not be embarrassed this morning. Because who's the main guy here? Who is the main character that we are talking about in Acts chapter 3 and Acts chapter 4? Who's the guy at the centre of it all? It's Peter. Isn't it? It's Peter. It is a man who just a few weeks ago was cowering away in a corner. It's a man who just a few weeks prior to this was hiding his, his very allegiance with God, a man who was embarrassed, a man who was, who was scared, a man who was hiding his faith. So this morning, don't worry for a second about how you have acted previously when you are persecuted or opposed for your faith. You know, you repent of that and you move on. And from here and now, you go boldly, okay, You go courageously into the week ahead, knowing that as we've seen today, if 
you face opposition, the power of God is going to be on your side. And you tell everyone that you meet at work, at home, wherever, you tell them about the stone the builders have rejected that has become the capstone. You tell people about the Lord Jesus Christ because Peter here, he's cowering away and he's scared. And he goes from that to a place where we read in verse 20 that he says, he cannot help but speak about Jesus Christ. So may that be our testimony from this day onwards, that we cannot help but talk about Jesus Christ, for salvation is found in him. He is Lord. He will, he will conquer all opposition. So let his church, let us raise his name on high. Let's pray.